Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Today we are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for a special guest episode. This will be the third episode in a series where we compare and contrast certain aspects of Greece with Rome. The previous two episodes featured classicists and fellow podcasters, Avon McMaster, to discuss Roman sexuality, and Peta Greenfield, to discuss the role of women in the religious sphere of Rome. Today we bring on Peta's other half from the Partial Historians, Fiona Radford, aka Dr. Radness, to discuss the role of slavery in ancient Rome. We also talk quite a bit about gladiators and slave revolts, which gives Fiona quite a bit of leeway to dive deeper into her favorite leading man from ancient Rome, Spartacus. That is because Dr. Radford is an expert on Rome and film, and in particular, she wrote her thesis on Kubrick Spartacus. Today we are joined by Fiona Radford. She is known as Dr. R, and she is one half of the Partial Historians. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Today we're going to talk about slavery in the Roman and Greek world and compare and contrast them. So first I want to start out by asking about Roman slaves. How were they acquired? In what ways were they acquired in Rome specifically? And then I'll talk about Greece and we'll see how they differ. Sounds good. I think there are some real similarities. And definitely for the Romans, they come from a variety of sources. I think the main one, though, which I'm sure Greece has in common, is that they're often captured prisoners of war. Yes. You know, so they get to capture people when they take over a town or a city or anything like that. And certainly some of our ideas of numbers, like as in how many slaves there were, come from the accounts of Roman conquests where they talk about you know, how many slaves were taken that particular day. But they could also be captured by you know, pirates or you know, kidnapped somehow and spirited away, which I always think is the most awful thing I could imagine, like being kidnapped somewhere in some remote town and then spirited away to another part of the world where nobody knows that you were actually a free person. You could also be convicted of a crime and end up being a slave of some sort as a result of that. You could be you could be the child of who's exposed, basically. We know that the Romans, I think, again, like the Greeks, practice exposure of unwanted children. And if those children weren't, you know, eaten by wild dogs first, there certainly does seem to have been a, a potential that that child would be picked up by someone walking past and raised into slavery. Technically, legally, they were actually still free. But of course, how are you going to prove it? And how would they even know they were a baby? You could also obviously be born into slavery. Any child that's born to a slave woman is automatically a slave as well. And also, perhaps a little unusually, you could be a slave because of debt. So we do have stories of parents who are desperate selling their children into slavery because they're you know, just that poor or struggling or maybe they don't like that kid very much, or they could sell themselves into slavery. So when did slavery start in the area of Rome? Because uh, I know with the Greeks, I mean, the Greeks obviously are a little bit older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know that we have records of the Greeks or slaves in the Mycenaean period. And then it kind of with the quote unquote dark ages or iron age, whatever you want to call it, there doesn't seem to be any continuity. But then, you know, it, they're slaves in the Odyssey. Uh, well, in the Iliad as well. So it does come back in the 8th, 7th century. Do we know roughly when slavery might have started with Rome or in Latium or in that area? I mean, I know the Truscans, they're famous for being slaves. Is it something that the Romans learned from them? Um, I mean, slavery is something natural, not natural, but... In their ancient world, yeah. 
yeah, in the ancient world. So maybe it's just something that came naturally to them, but uh, maybe they got it from the Etruscans. I don't know. Well, the, any connection between the Etruscans and the Romans, it's always kind of difficult to prove because the Etruscans left so little written records. It's highly possible. I mean, obviously, Roman culture is heavily influenced by the Etruscans, but then again, it's also heavily influenced by the Greeks. <laughs> so, I mean, if the, if the Greeks are practicing slavery, then the problem, as you would know, with the Roman records for the earliest period of Rome itself is that they were written so much later. So, there's always a chance that certain cultural aspects of a later period of Rome are being sort of, you know, retrojected back into this early period of Rome. However, the accounts we have, I think it makes it fairly clear that slavery was always a part of Roman society in the sense that we hear of one of the kings of Rome potentially being of servile origins, Servus Tullius. It seems that they were definitely around and certainly, I mean, like a slave plays a pretty crucial part in the early Republic when the Romans, you know, rise up and throw over those cruel overlords, you know, the Tarquins, one of the, you know, the heroes of the early Republic is, of course, Brutus, who had, you know, held at the body of Lucretia and be like, look what these jackasses did. Aren't you mad? His own son seemed to have been part of a conspiracy to bring back the Tarquins. And the person who exposes that conspiracy is a slave. So... You know, the stories that we have, they're not, whilst they're not necessarily explicitly about slavery, you know, as a phenomenon, the slaves do seem to be present, you know, in the background. So you mentioned some of the slaves came about through debt slavery as well, which was a huge thing. And not only Athens, just archaic Greece in general in the late 7th, 6th century BC. And it ultimately, it led to their democracy. Well, the tyranny, then the democracy. Very important step in between that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> <You> have time. <laughs> Interesting enough, uh, in Greece, the first polis that organized a slave trade, according to the sources, was Chios. And they also had an early democratic process, too. So it's a very ironic aspect of Greek history that in hand in hand with the advancement of both freedom, quote unquote, democracy, came along more and more slavery, which is something that we see big time with Athens and her empire in the fifth century BC as well, which I guess you also see with the Romans too, as they become more powerful, they, they start enslaving more and more people. After the first Punic War. That seems to be when it really takes off. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a feature up until then, but probably not as large as people might imagine. Just because, you know, they're they're too small and they're not really taking over heaps and heaps of places. So, you know, where are the slaves going to come from? Well, speaking of where the slaves come from, what are the demographics of a lot of the slaves that are in Rome? And we're talking about the Republic now, as it progresses, where are the first slaves that come from? Do we have evidence of that? Are they Greeks or are they Thracians or Punic slaves or Latin slaves? Or where are the first slaves that come from? Well, to be honest, because slavery does seem to have been a feature of Roman history like from the get-go, at first, the earliest slaves would have been probably other Romans or at least other Italian people. As you would know, because <laughs> I know you listen to the partial historians every now and then, <laughs> um, Rome has a very painful birthing period <laughs> where it's you know, fighting a lot of conflicts with people who really aren't that far away from them. And so their earliest slaves, you know, who they acquire through conquest would have been people who are not too culturally dissimilar to themselves. 
but they weren't, as far as we can tell, they don't seem to have been in like massively significant numbers. Really, in terms of where the slaves come from, it really just depends on like where is Rome fighting wars currently, because obviously that is a major source of their slave intake, particularly once they start their real empire building, you know, conquering foreign territory and that kind of stuff. It will change a little bit depending on where they are currently fighting. But we do get sort of large intakes of slaves happening when they have like their big notable conflicts like during the Punic Wars, during the Macedonian conflicts. I mean, Spartacus was taken during a conflict with Thrace, but not not a particularly big one. (laughs) You've also got, of course, uh, as you say, with Greece, when Rome starts conquering large parts of Greece, you do start to get an influx of Greek slaves being available to them. When Julius Caesar is, you know, fighting in Gaul, we've got like a massive intake of slaves, you know, possibly, you know, like a million people being taken during that time. So it really just depends where they are currently fighting as to where the slaves will be coming from. The thing about Roman slavery, I think, which people might not be aware of in the popular imagination, is that it doesn't have that particular racial aspect that we tend to associate with slavery because of slavery, like in modern America. You're not a slave in Rome because you are a certain race. They definitely think of themselves as being, you know, a superior race, but you're not like automatically a slave just because you're from a particular racial background. So did these slaves keep their cultural distinction then or were they kind of Romanized after being a slave for so long? Because, you know, like the Greeks, they gave names to people based upon where they came from. So like Thrace, I mean, just like the Romans with Spartacus, the Thrace was a very good hotbed for Greek slaves. And they would name them like Thrax if it was a male and Thrata if it was a female. And they were very common slave names in Athens and they appear frequently in the comedies of Aristophanes. So the names that were given to slaves that often had some sort of geographical link. And then in particular, the nationality of a slave was a significant criterion for uh, purchases when they were sold. And the, the ancients didn't want to get too many slaves from one origin and place in order to limit the risk of revolt, which the Romans had a few of. Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they also had certain philosophies that certain nationalities were more productive than other nationalities in certain places are better to do certain jobs, whether it's true or not, or for better or worse. That's still what the uh, philosophers thought, at least from the Athenian perspective. All of these places were essentially assimilated to the categorization of barbaroi or barbarian. And they had debt slavery in the archaic period. But by the time the classical period comes about, it was completely unthinkable that a Greek from, say, Corinth or Thebes or any Greek polis for that instance would ever serve as a slave in Athens. So it was definitely by that point it became slave equals foreigner in the minds of the Greeks. As you said, the Romans initially would have enslaved the people from their territory in central Italy. Did there ever become like, I don't want to say a light bulb, but like a a moment where they're like, oh no, we can't enslave people of our own uh, ilk, so to speak. They have to be foreigners. I think you're right. I think it, it, they had a similar progression, just obviously on a different time scale <laughs> to the Greeks. There was a point where it became considered sort of cruel to make a fellow Roman uh, or you know even a fellow Italian, let's say, serve as a slave in the area where they were from because you know it's so degrading to have to do that 
for whatever reason that you, you know, that you did. But they didn't say, oh, well, you can't be a slave then. Their attitude was, oh, send them far away, you know, somewhere where no one will know that they were, <laughs> they, that they were Roman once and now they're a slave. It's more, I think, just because the, you know, the behavior you have to assume, the kind of things you have to do as a slave is you know, just so degrading. You know, you lose your reputation and your standing and it would just be cruel for people you knew to witness that or, you know, to be amongst the culture which you once used to belong, the super superior Roman culture and, you know, have to consider yourself in a sense an outsider to that. They definitely had stereotypes as well about slaves from this sort of region were better for certain purposes. So, for example, the Greeks, definitely highly prized. So, cha-ching for you. Um, they liked them to be, you know, tutors to their children or, you know, to help them run their businesses or that kind of stuff because they were generally considered to be educated in the way that a civilized person would be educated. And also from Egypt, and they did look at people from, say, Gaul, sort of Germanic territories as being less civilized as a people. And therefore, they wouldn't perhaps be as highly prized to be, say, a houseboy or something like that. They might be better as bodyguards or doing, you know, heavy labor or something like that. The names, whilst it's possible, yes, that you could have a name that reflected perhaps your origin, the Romans also did just tend to give them sort of names that would indicate they didn't have much standing. So like Felix, which means lucky, <laughs> which is a kind of derogatory name to have if you're, you know, an adult. <laughs> so they didn't necessarily name people based on where they were from. In Latin, I guess, what were some of the names that were given to them? Like in Greek, we see in Homer, they're called demos, which essentially refers to prisoners of war. Eventually, they kind of started dehumanizing them over time. So by the classical Greeks, you get doulos, which is often used in opposition to elotheros, which is free man. So slave as opposed to a free man. It's also a word that has metaphor involved attached to political subjugation. So in other words those who were under the rule of a tyrant might be described as a duloi, so to speak. Being free meant everything. So it was like, you're not free, so you're nothing. You're not a man, so to speak, or a woman. And then you get terms like oiketis, which is essentially means the one who lives in a house. And these are like household servants. And then they're like therapon, meaning servant, and akaluthos, which means follower. And then you start getting into some of the really dehumanizing words like anthropos, which simply means human being. So they're like, you human being, used pejoratively, um, as if he was like some unnamed and undifferentiated human being. Like just, hey, anthropos, get over here. And they start stripping slaves even more of their identity by not even calling them humans altogether. So you'll get things like soma, which means physical body, or an andropon, which means a thing with the feet of a man. As opposed to like tetrapodon, which means a thing with four feet, which it was a word that they used for livestock. So they were like, oh, you're not a livestock, but you're essentially similar and we'll call you something with the feet of a man. Finally, we still see this a lot in American culture in the a deep south slavery. They would call them like pace, which means child or boy. Even though you might be older than me, you're the status that's like a child because the slave will never be able to operate as a free and independent adult. You saw that in uh, Deep South 19th century America too, and even into the 20th century with a lot of the racist language when you call people boys and things like that. Is there anything like that in Rome? How are the evolution of the Latin language? How did they differentiate slaves in derogatory way or just a normal way? In terms of the actual word slave, as in Serwi, potentially that um, it comes from this idea that they are saving them. So they are like coming from the word soare. So that these are people who are saved 
rather than say being executed during capture like there's a potential interesting angle there in terms of how they view I mean this is the thing we tend to think of slavery obviously as being something awful not to say that it's not <laughs> but um, yeah, in the Roman world I think in a sense they thought it as being a step forward because they're not just massacring these people they're giving them a chance this is life the other option is okay well we could just kill you you know which obviously does happen it's better to be a slave in Rome than a barbarian in Gaul. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And also, I think it comes down to that essential distinction that the Romans and the Greeks have, I think, over slavery, even though there's so many similarities, in that definitely the names are a clear indication of status in terms of the actual name that you are given as a slave. So in Rome, a way of telling a, a man is a citizen man is that he will have, you know, three names at least. I mean, sometimes they get ridiculous and get like six <laughs> or seven, but they will have, you know, the three names, the praenomen, the nomen, the cognomen, that will signify that they are from a family of standing. And a slave, on the other hand, or a woman, someone of, you know, no status at all, has one name generally. If you are a slave, it will be something like, as you said, like boy in Latin, like pua or something like that, or Felix, which means lucky, something like that. Or Spartacus, for example, he just has the one name. We kind of think it sounds cool and kick-ass now, but it is meant to be obviously a sign of his servile status, that he only has the one name. The thing is, though, the essential difference between Greece and Rome in terms of their attitudes to slavery is that the Romans saw slavery as a temporary state. It was something that you were going to be going through and you could probably come out the other side. And once you did that, you could potentially even be a Roman citizen, in which case your name would become you know, Latinized. Uh, you would adopt part of the name of your master to indicate the link that you have with him because he would be your patron. So, for example, the writer Josephus, he was originally fighting during the first Jewish-Roman conflict. He ended up being captured one of the Jewish prisoners that was taken, the guy who he ended up being associated with and making himself very useful to was a guy called Vespasian, who ended up becoming emperor just a couple of years later, very unexpectedly. And Josephus ends up going back to Rome with that family where he seems to have lived a pretty fulfilling life. Um, you know, he got married a bunch of times. He wrote his works there. He is manumitted and becomes a Roman citizen. His name becomes Flavius Josephus to indicate his connection to that Flavian family. Now, obviously, he's pretty lucky. But that does indicate the possibility for, you know, life beyond slavery in Rome. So how often was manumission? Like, was that common? Because I know it was very rare for Greeks. It only happened, like, as a reward for their loyalty during maybe a period of war or on the death of their master. Even then, they had the same rights as a medic, a resident foreigner. They weren't considered Greek citizens. Or if it was in Athens, they weren't considered an Athenian citizen. Whereas in Rome, they got Roman citizenship, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is where the Romans, I'm sorry, they are so more progressive than the Greeks. <laughs> this is why I think they were, in a sense, more successful. <laughs> I mean, in certain ways, yeah. I think you're more likely to go along with something like slavery if you can see something in it for you in the long term, in that. If you know that you could potentially get this magical golden ticket of Roman citizenship, like that's a possibility, and that you could then be partaking in this amazing system that they've got going for themselves, <laughs> where that is the best status you could have in the empire, then you're probably less likely to revolt or do things like that. It's hard to say how they felt about it because we also have almost nothing from terms of literature from a slave point of view. We just have nothing. So essentially, Roman slavery was like modern internships where you get exploited for a year and you <laughs> hope to get that job at the end. 
you don't get paid you get exploited (laughs) you might have to give up a few of your kids and you know fall pregnant to the master a few times but hey at the end of it you get your you know your gold watch and your (laughs) retirement package (laughs) we don't really know how often it happened but interestingly we know that augustus was worried it was happening too much and so he actually created laws around like how you had to manumit your slaves because he was trying to slow down the manumissions it would seem Laws tend to be reactive like that. So clearly he was worried that there were too many people being manumitted. Potentially he was worried about that because it was the idea of diluting the native Roman, I suppose, too much. But certainly if you look at a lot of the names of people who are you know, citizens, like so many of them obviously have servile origins, as in they're not Roman, not, not originally. You know, they're Greek names or they're Egyptian names or they're Syrian names or something that's been Latinized some point when some ancestor was once a slave and then became freed. It certainly did happen a lot that people would manumit their slaves in their wills, but we can't be 100% sure exactly how long the Romans saw this lasting. Like there's a reference in Cicero where he, he refers to a normal term of slavery as being about five to six years. And the idea is, I suppose, that generally the Romans would take people captive who couldn't afford to pay a ransom. So sometimes when they were capturing people in warfare, they'd be like, all right, we've got this town surrounded. So hand over this much money or you're coming with us. (laughs) And if you couldn't afford to pay that, then you became a slave. If you could, then you potentially just stayed where you were. So the idea is, I suppose, that you were a slave for so long to work off that money that you kind of owed them. But we do also know, obviously, of slaves that served their master for decades. Some of the Romans are quite callous. We do have references to old slaves being treated. Cato's pretty hardcore, and he is earliest republic. He does talk about, you know, just toss aside your slaves like you would, you know, an old wheelbarrow that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> no biggie. And we do know that the Emperor Claudius, a couple of centuries later, did have to do something about the fact that people were dumping sick or old slaves on an island in the middle of the Tiber just to, you know, let him go in the temple. (laughs) So, yeah, it's obviously something that you could be in for a long time, but definitely there was this idea that you could definitely be freed and get citizenship. And whilst you might not be able to fully partake in Roman life, as in you couldn't, say, run for office or something, your children sure could. Yeah, that definitely didn't happen in Greece. (laughs) (laughs) So you said that slaves were basically they're able to work for their freedom. Yeah. Were slaves able to like buy their freedom? Yes. I know in Greece they had specifically craftsmen slaves who took out a loan from their master and they actually lived apart from their master and they just paid him a set proportion of their earnings until they met them out of the loan, at which point they were freed. So we have an example like Tamarcus in Athens had shoemakers who handed over two obols a day and they kept the rest towards buying their freedom. So the most people in Athens who were able to do this were managers of shops and factories, bankers, artisans, all that sort of stuff that the Greeks thought was beneath them, the bonastic work. It was all about leisure and loafing around in the agora. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So was that sort of thing in Rome? Were they able to live apart from their master and then pay off the debts from their earnings? Or was it always just you worked for your master for a set time and he determined that, okay, now I've gotten X amount of work out of you and this equals X amount of money and then I'll let you go? I think it probably depends a little bit on what kind of a slave you were. They wouldn't generally live apart from their master while doing this. Not as in, you know, they were sharing bunk beds, but as in (laughs) just being part of the same household. (laughs) 
basically the big distinction in Rome seems to have been between whether you were an urban slave or whether you were a rural slave. Rural slaves are doing obviously mostly agricultural work like on large farms or just farms, but probably large farms. And they probably had less of a chance to make a connection with their master because their master was probably in Rome or, you know, doing some sort of political business elsewhere. He wasn't going to be, you know, watching people farm. So in that sense, you probably have less of a chance to form an emotional connection and therefore he's less likely to sort of want to free you or manumit you. And he's also less likely to maybe give you some money to save in exchange for your work. Whereas we know definitely that the Romans legally recognized the slaves right to use money that they earned. Technically, it was always their masters. Technically, it's always his property, but he could give them money you know, for their work and they could sort of save that up and use that to buy their freedom. It's called the peculium in Rome. So I always like to say to my students, isn't it peculiar that a slave gets a peculium? <laughs> um, but certainly if you were like a gladiator or something, you were winning prize money. You know, if you won a match, you could win quite a lot of money. And so whilst technically your master is in charge of it, he can allow you to technically sort of have ownership for that and use that to buy maybe, you know, your wife's freedom or, or your freedom. When a slave does get freed, is it always total freedom or were there partial? Because I know that um, in Greece, there was total freedom. The emancipated slave was legally protected against all attempts at re-enslavement. We have a few lawsuits in the Athenian records where a child of a former master tried to renege and re-enslave someone that was uh, freed on his will and that didn't fly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> and then you have other cases where it's partial, where the emancipated slave was liable to be a slave during a certain time of the year. So like fine. And then he was free the rest of the year, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> Just when you think you get out, they pull you back in. <laughs> the reason behind that is it costs money to keep a slave. So why feed them and house and board during the winter when they're not getting any use out of them? Let them go fend for themselves and make sure they're back here for the harvest. Or the sowing season, whatever. Oh, completely, yeah. <laughs> the Romans were quite savvy about how they freed their slaves. You're absolutely right. There is an important distinction to be made about how you are freed in that if it's just very casual, like, yeah, 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 yeah you're free. You're free. Don't, yeah, just go about your business, whatever. That would mean that you are considered free, but you wouldn't necessarily also be a citizen unless you were properly and formally manumitted. And so that required, you know, witnesses. There was meant to be like a little sort of hand-holding <laughs> ceremony because so often this idea of, um, you know, a Roman master's control over anything, um, you know, just members of his household, it comes back to this idea of manos, which is like your hand. So that's where we get the word for like manual labor from. So the idea was that he would sort of hold your hand and then let it go. The idea being that you are now out of his hands, you know, you are manumitted if that makes sense. Marriage is kind of a little bit the same in that there's a very strict type of marriage called the manus type of marriage, which is where a woman sort of legally becomes part of her husband's family. And then there's the more casual, you know, sine manus, without manus marriage, which becomes much more common later in the period. So it's definitely all about control and like, what are you in charge of? What do you have power over? What is in your hands as a Roman man? So, yeah, you definitely wanted to make sure what your rights were because being a Roman citizen, one of the reasons why it's so special is that it does guarantee you certain physical privileges and protections. Part of the idea of being a slave is that you are guaranteed none of those protections. So, technically, you are physically able to be beaten and that kind of stuff, whereas as a citizen, you should be protected from that. 
So not necessarily in regard to freedom, but legal aspects and slaves in general. Were there any sort of laws prohibiting from like beating your slave or human rights laws for the slaves? Or were they just kind of pure property you could do to them as you wished? In Athens, you weren't allowed to hit another person's slave. There's a hubris law for that because you couldn't distinguish necessarily between who was a citizen and who was a slave because they kind of dressed similar and all that sort of thing. And you didn't want to attack another human being like a violation of hubris. But you could legally flog and beat your own slave. You know they're your slave. And slaves were only allowed to give testimony in court when they're tortured was only considered admissible because... They're such liars. <laughs> yeah. They weren't torching the slave for something he or she has done, but for evidence about something that somebody else has done. So Yeah, and they wanted to make sure they were telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. And because obviously they won't tell the truth unless you stretch their arms out of their socket or, you know, whatever you do to torture. Fear is the only thing that works. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so how are Roman slaves seen legally speaking? I think it's fairly similar, not as in there's literally a hubris law, but as in slaves are looked at as property. They have absolutely no rights in terms of human rights, and they have no moral standing officially like by the law, but they are property. Just like I can't come over and break your incredibly valuable Beats headphones, (laughs) you can't just attack my slave for no good reason. So definitely I think there is an idea of, you know, which family did the slave belong to and who within that family, you know, had the rights to potentially beat the slave. Obviously in any slave system, I think there is a certain twisted kind of level of protection in that you don't want to damage your own property. So if I get frustrated with my computer, I don't immediately pick it up and smash it on the floor. I do. I take... (laughs) (laughs) I I knew that about you. (laughs) When you get those Twitter followers, you know. (laughs) Um, You're more likely, obviously, to sort of want to take a breath and think about it because if you, say, break their arm, then they're not going to be able to work. And it's possibly going to cost you money in terms of medical bills if you're going to fix it and that kind of stuff. However, technically, yes, you do have the right to do that kind of thing to them. And there are certainly cases that we hear of which sound horrific into what people would do to slaves. And certainly the same thing with the legal cases. It was thought that it would sometimes be necessary to torture a slave in order to get true testimony. And that torture generally obviously had to be something that was painful but not fatal. So like, as you say, stretching their arms out of their sockets or, you know, flogging them with a whip, which might have little spikes attached to the tips, those kinds of delightful things. As we move on, though, in time period, there is definitely an interest in legislating about slaves. And sometimes it would almost seem like these are in a sense, human rights in that it seems that Hadrian, who's, you know, sort of mid-empire, did make a law where masters were forbidden to kill their slaves. So that's pretty big (laughs) because before they were totally able to. But I don't think many people did. And then the later that you go on, so for example, in uh, one of the big collections of Roman laws, you know, which we get from this sort of time period, a Theodosian collection, there is a law about not being able to separate children from their parents, as in slave children from slave parents. Before, because they're your property, you could totally sell children, wives away from people because they weren't recognized as having any legal connection to anyone except their owner. Even if they consider themselves married, it's not legal. So you can separate a married couple for a while, it would seem, in Roman history. Even something like suicide was considered to be a crime against property 
because you were damaging your master's property yourself. One of the big interesting legal cases is that I think in a sense, Rome is still operating often on laws that are maybe a bit outdated or they're operating on traditions that are you know, made in a time when they didn't have so many slaves. So, for example, one of the most notorious examples of not really slave rights, but just like how to treat slaves, I suppose, and it kind of has a human rights dimension to it, is during the reign of Nero in AD 61, a man named Pedanius Secundus, who is an elite Roman man, dies, he's murdered, it would seem, and the normal Roman practice, if that happens, is to execute all the slaves in the household because the idea is that somebody must have known something if he's murdered by a member of his own household, that these slaves should have prevented it somehow, like whether it's dobbing it in or physically helping him or whatever. However, there is debate about whether this should actually be carried out because he owned so many slaves. Because by this stage in Rome's history, the elite Romans own a ton of slaves. And so he has 400 slaves that would be liable to be executed in this particular case. And there are protests from the Roman people about carrying this out because, of course, some of them are you know, children, some of them are, are women. And so there's an outcry and the Senate have to have a debate about whether they're actually going to go through with this law or not. Even some senators seem to be you know, thinking about, well, I don't know, this seems a bit extreme. <laughs> However, they decide they have to go through with it because otherwise, what kind of example would that be setting to the other slaves in the city? You know, you've got to make sure that they know that you're going to carry through that punishment because otherwise everybody's going to be murdering their masters or, you know, taking part in plots and it's just going to be mayhem. So they do go through with it. But there definitely seems to be a significant part of the Roman population who are sort of protesting against this as too much. So you said that by this point, I guess the early empire, some of the elite had many, many slaves. I mean, I know it's going to be different probably from the middle republic to the late republic to the empire, but how many slaves were typical for a home and did every family plebeian and patrician have at least one slave? I mean, obviously the most elite would have a lot more, but I know in Athens, if you didn't have one slave, you were basically considered very, very poor. And even poor peasants in Aristophanes' plays have several slaves. And Aristotle even defines an oikos, which is a household, as containing both free men and slave alike. So it's not an oikos without a slave. So it seems that most Athenian households had two or three, and some had half a dozen or more, and the wealthy possessed between 10 and 20. And then like the super wealthy had even greater. So Plato had five slaves himself, and he was super wealthy, not wealth compared to Roman imperial standards. (laughs) 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 Nicias had a thousand slaves, and he would lease them out to his citizens at one obol per slave a day. He was making money off of his slaves by selling them out. And then even sold them out to work in the mines and stuff. Nice. (laughs) How many slaves were typical for a Roman household? What was the threshold for like super wealthy? What was normal? That sort of stuff. To be honest, again, it's a little tricky just because our sources are so skewed, as I imagine yours probably are too. Obviously, the bulk of our literature, no matter what time period you're talking about, is produced by wealthy men. And so I think in a sense, slaves seem very much part of the fabric of Roman society because these are exactly the people who would own slaves and own a lot of them and therefore have a lot of interactions with them. Whereas when you are talking about people further down the scale, they are as underrepresented really as the slaves in terms of producing literature, which tells us anything about their lives. 
obviously depending on the time period, but let's say we go sort of late Republic, early Empire, elite Romans would have lots of slaves because in Roman society, slavery by that stage really becomes about showing off. It's about status. <laughs> if you can have a slave to perform a truly menial function, like open a door, and that's his only job, then that just shows how insanely wealthy you are. <laughs> and so that's the kind of thing that the Romans end up like doing with their urban slaves and their household slaves. And when you were going out, you know, doing your business, going to the forum, that kind of stuff, if you had a large retinue around you, like a large entourage, that also signified that you were super important. Um, so it does become a bit of a numbers game in terms of for the elite, like how many slaves can you have and what kind of ridiculous jobs can you give them to justify their existence? So that's why being an urban slave is better than being a rural slave. And that's on top of the rural slaves that you probably also own who work, you know, your farms and that kind of stuff. When it comes to people further down the scale, it is a little harder to say. I think that there definitely would have been a significant chunk of the citizen population who probably wouldn't have had slaves at all. But that is a bit of a guess. As I say, we, we really just have so little about them. Even if we look at sources where the slaves are represented in terms of like tombstones, that's where we get some evidence which seems to be sometimes a little bit more from the slave point of view. Again, who's going to be able to pay for tombstones? The slaves of rich people or, you know, or the freedmen of rich people, in other words, you know, the kind of people who are going to have family tombs where they can bury family slaves. So, yeah, it's hard to say. Definitely in Rome, it was possible to rent a slave, like I think you mentioned in the Greek circumstances. So if you weren't particularly financial, but you did want to have a slave for a special occasion, you could definitely rent slaves. And that would also kind of suck for the slaves because it means that they are pretty much on call, you know, 24-7, seven days a week. Whereas if you worked as part of a permanent household, you might actually get a master who gives you time off or, you know, you have a bit more time to sort of relax, especially if your door, your job is literally door opener. <laughs> <laughs> what a job. I know. <laughs> I think I could do that. I could totally do that. <laughs> so you mentioned that slaves, their condition varied much according to their status. So the rural slaves are much worse than urban ones. Were there any particular slaves that were the worst off? So like in Athens, it was those who worked in the silver mines at Lorient and the porni or brothel prostitutes. Those by far were the worst treated and had the quote unquote roughest lives. Whereas craftsmen, tradesmen, and bankers, they kind of enjoyed relative independence. And then some of the most privileged ones were owned by the state. I don't know if the Romans had that sort of stuff, but they in did, Athens, yeah. they were the demosioi or the public ones. And they included like the notaries, the jury clerks, coin testers, the Scythian slaves that were kind of like police officers that were just kind of, oh, it's time to go vote in the ecclesia. And they would round people up. They guarded prisons, carried out executions because you were not allowed to kill another fellow citizen. So, uh, barbarians had to do it and they made arrests because you know that law against hubris again you're not allowed to physically harm another citizen or detain them physically restrain them and that sort of stuff so back to my question again yeah. <laughs> <Circling> <laughs> what kind of slaves were the worst off and did the romans have public slaves that were owned by the state Yes, they did have public slaves. Definitely, I don't think they were quite as extensive as the system in Greece that you were describing. That sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> but they definitely did have public slaves that would be involved in like maybe something like construction. And in a sense, I suppose, I mean, 
I would definitely not turn these public slaves. But by the time you get into the empire, you are in this gray area. It's a bit hard to distinguish sometimes, particularly in the early empire, between the emperor's personal household and the state. And so you definitely get a lot of resentment expressed in the sources towards, say, freedmen or ex-slaves who are helping the emperor to run the empire, you know, to balance his books, to answer his letters, you know, to deal with his fan mail, to, you know, deal with petitions, to find him a wife. Like, you know, all these freedmen are talked about in these sorts of roles. Even Augustus, obviously, the you know, I suppose kind of the first emperor or the first princeps, whatever you want to call him, when he dies, he says to the Senate in his will, check in with my freedmen. They know what's going on with the empire. So they're not public slaves, but they're certainly involved in you know, running the empire and the business of the empire. So they're very posh slaves. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, freedmen, this, this is the problem. The Romans start getting a bit resentful sometimes because some of these freedmen are living in mansions. They've got so much money. Being a freedman, you could really kick ass. They absolutely became very wealthy. And, and on tombstones, again, where we sort of get their stories a little bit more, we not even necessarily ridiculously ostentatious ones, but we do have inscriptions saying something like, here lies Fiona, a freedwoman. And yes, she paid for this herself. <laughs> and, you know, they're obviously really proud of the fact that they could do that kind of thing, yeah. But the worst jobs, to answer your question, I think are kind of similar in Rome in that the worst job would be to work in the mines. That's like a death sentence. If you ended up being a slave because you had committed some sort of capital crime, essentially you might be sent to the mines because that's pretty dark. We get descriptions of the mines and it's not pleasant. Where were the mines in Rome? They're not necessarily in Rome itself, but within the empire, like it might be quarrying stone, you know, um, for the big building projects or things like that. But it is essentially acknowledged to be a death sentence where you might last, say, a year because the work is just so grueling and nobody cares if you live or die. That's how the silver mines were in Attica too. It was such a high attrition rate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Diodorus, the guy who sort of gives us our best description of what it was like in these mines, he says that because the working conditions, you know, life was just so bad, a lot of them prefer to die. So I guess in terms of morale as well, it's not just physical. Nobody wants to live that kind of life because you're not coming out of there. You know, if you, if you go there, that's it. Whereas if you're a slave in, say, the city, you could be transferred to another household, you know, you might be sold on, you might have different masters and that kind of stuff, and you are going to be doing something probably householdish, which might not always be great, but it's certainly not working in the mines. Being a rural slave could also be pretty tough as well. Because your master was away a lot, probably, you could also just be unlucky to be under the supervision of someone cruel. And there's not really a lot that you can do about that. <laughs> so you might be worked pretty hard. And the general consensus is that these people probably also didn't have really long life expectancies. But certainly the intention was not to do that necessarily. And there were sort of periods where the Romans seemed to be a bit more casual about their rural slaves because they just had this massive conquest and the, the slave market was sort of flooded. And so unfortunately, almost Nazi-like, they didn't care if they worked people to death as much as they did at other times. But generally the intention was that if you're a good master, then you'll get good work. So you want to make sure that they have, you know, plain and basic but enough food and practical but comfortable clothing, that kind of stuff. That's definitely the intention. But who the hell knows? We have nothing from their point of view. 
So speaking of the grim outlook of the slaves that you uh, painted there, finally. Yes. <laughs> do they have freedom in terms of like religion, mystery cults, afterlife religion? What were the roles in that? The Romans were relatively open to other religions. As in, you know, if they conquered a new territory, they saw a new cult, they'd kind of be like, okay, cool. And they kind of saw it as being maybe important to continue the worship of that God in that area because otherwise you might offend a God and that's not good. So they were relatively open to people practicing their own religious beliefs except for ones that were going to be troublesome politically in terms of giving the slaves rebellious ideas. For example, Judaism, Christianity, Rome often clashed with these religions, not because they saw the religion as being particularly problematic, So I don't think I asked that question very poignantly. I meant to say, were the slaves allowed freedom to practice in any religion or mystery cult as they wished, or the Romans kind of hampered down on that? Within reason. Yeah, within reason. I know early Christians tend to be a lot of slaves and women and stuff like that. I know uh, worship of like Mithras, Isis, any of those like mystery cult religions. Do we have a lot of evidence for the slaves? Did they practice? Was it something that they were able to go to freely? Were they involved in these cults or was it just kind of like they were allowed personal worship, but they weren't allowed to do any sort of public? Yeah, no, absolutely. Basically, you're right. Within reason, the Romans were okay with people practicing their own sort of cult worship. I mean, after all, let's think about it. Who is most likely to have really introduced cults like ISIS to Rome? Slaves. Like they bring it over with them. And so it does seem to be that these sorts of introduced cults often have quite high numbers of slaves, at least at first. And certainly once those cults become accepted and, you know, become a part of the Roman cultural landscape, then the slaves will be taking part like anybody else in certain ceremonies. So, you know, obviously there are temples to Isis and that kind of stuff. Like we found them in Pompeii. We can't obviously say like, you know, how often did they go to the temple? (laughs) We don't really know. But certainly it would seem that the attraction of a cult like Isis might have been the sort of more personal dimension or the saviour aspect to it, I suppose, than, say, Roman state religion. However, I think they were definitely expected to be part of Roman state religion. You know, everybody was. And that's why it's within reason, because the Romans sometimes have a problem with people who are Jewish or Christian, and that's more because they see those cults as being sort of seditious, they're a political problem for the state because they can't be assimilated the way that they're practiced by the people who believe in them all of the time. Not everybody, but there's definitely that element to it. However, I mean, it's important to remember that even when Christianity becomes more prevalent in the Roman Empire, the Christians still own slaves. Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. I mean, St. Paul, there is a story recorded of how a slave ran away to him and he sent the slave back because he was like, "Ah, not taking part in this. (laughs) Blessed are the meek. Yeah, exactly. Christianity offered you something after death, I suppose, if your life was so hellish. But it really didn't offer more than, say, stoicism, in a sense, in terms of how it viewed slaves. It viewed slaves as being, you know, people capable of moral feelings and impulses, but not necessarily, you know, slavery should be abolished kind of sense of things. Um, In terms of the Roman religious calendar, the slaves definitely were a part of that. So there was a particularly interesting festival in July, on July 7th, called the Feast of the Serving Women. 
And this was in commemoration of a very heroic act by female slaves sort of back in early Republican history. So it's really interesting because it's celebrating, you know, sort of the two categories of people that the Romans looked down on the most, women and slaves. (laughs) (laughs) So legend has it that after the Gauls had captured Rome, and obviously Rome's at a pretty low point, the Latins had advanced on the city and said to the Romans, give us your women. And the Romans are all like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, what do we do? And a slave girl comes with this idea that they dress up all the slave women in really fine clothes. They look like free women and hand them over. You know, job done. (laughs) Once they are in the enemy camp, they would then sneakily disarm the Latins while they slept. And then this clever, clever slave girl who came up with this idea would set a fig tree on fire as a signal to the Romans. Okay, now's your chance, boys. And so, sure enough, the Romans come and defeat them. And so, this festival is seen to be in commemoration of that. So, the slave women would dress up in their finest clothes and they would run around hitting citizen men with fig boughs. Hmm, sounds like fun. I know what I'm going to do on Saturday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the big one, of course, though, was the Saturnalia, which is around the time that we celebrate Christmas nowadays. This was originally sort of around December 17 that it would kick off, but it was considered to be such a fun time of year and people loved it so much in Rome that it was extended into a three-day festival and then a seven-day festival. So it became a really big deal. And the reason why slaves are kind of crucial to this is because not only is no business transacted during this time, but the world is sort of allowed to go topsy-turvy and slaves are sort of allowed to do whatever they want at this point in time. I think the Greeks, they had something similar, didn't they, at that time of year? They had the Cronia. Yeah, yeah. That's the only festival we know of and worshipped at Kronos. And we know a lot about the Cronia because the Roman Accius, he talks about it in terms of relating it to the Saturnalia. He was like, oh, these are similar. And I think right, it compares yeah, and contrasts. Yeah. And the Cronia is basically worshipped at Cronus and it's going back to the Golden Age, Cronus the Titan, where there was no slavery. So it's kind of everybody's free for the length of the festival. So that's essentially the Greek equivalent of the Saturnalia. Saturn is Kronos. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's obviously a big thing for slaves because they are able to hang out with their <laughs> masters and, you know, eat with them and tell them what they really think and <laughs> you know, get drunk and party. And, yeah, so that would be their time to sort of let loose. And some of the Romans do sort of advise that you do sort of allow your slaves to do that from time to time because otherwise they're going to get resentful and cranky. So it's the ancient Roman version of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Pretty much, yeah. It's funny, actually, because there are sort of sources that there is an indication that, you know, like, okay, let them do what they want during that time period. But the day it's over, you better be back to business with a serious face (laughs) because otherwise they're just going to try and prolong it, you know, and get away with as much as they can and be like, oh, but yesterday was a Saturnalia. I'm just, you know, I'm just in that headspace. (laughs) You you are back to being a slave. (laughs) Don't you forget it. Yeah, so there is definitely that kind of element to it. But yeah, it's really interesting in such a stratified society, you know, to have that kind of celebration. So speaking of celebration and slaves, what are other roles that they had in entertainment? I know they had the gladiators and they weren't popular characters in Roman comedies. If you want to talk more about gladiators and Spartacus, your favorite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know I do. (laughs) How much time do you have? (laughs) Yeah, look, you could definitely end up in the arena if you were a slave. I probably should have mentioned that alongside the worst jobs (laughs) because that wouldn't be fun. You could definitely end up being sold to a gladiator school or something like that for entertainment purposes. In terms of plays, obviously, you're right, the slave characters are popular characters in comedies, but the Roman comedies are very much based on Greek comedies. (laughs) They're kind of rip-offs, really. But yeah, they do seem to enjoy, again, that sort of role reversal idea for comedy. 
I suppose much in the same way that we kind of still do with, you know, like trading places and classics like that. <laughs> they do kind of like the slave who's smarter than the master or they like stories where some kid was exposed and, you know, raised as a slave and, you know, the story might be like, oh, my God, they're actually free. And not only are they free, but they're of high status. Oh, my God. Like <laughs> those kinds of, of stories are definitely popular <laughs> in entertainment circles. In terms of gladiators, I can just randomly start talking about gladiators. <laughs> yeah, let's actually do that. Yeah, well, obviously gladiators are kind of a bit of a standalone. So whilst I can totally brag about the fact that the Romans were more open-minded in some ways than the Greeks <laughs> with slaves, they certainly weren't when it came to gladiators. <laughs> so basically when you became a gladiator, you had to take an oath. That kind of ties into what we were talking about before about your body not being protected as a slave, as it would be as a citizen. So you had to sort of take an oath that you were happy to be burned, beaten, bound by the rod. And that apparently didn't deter some people from selling themselves to become a gladiator, whether it was for fame or for the money that you could win in the arena. Certainly... As time goes on, that again becomes sort of more popular option for people who are down on their luck or really want to be the Kim Kardashian of the ancient world or whatever. So Romans would voluntarily go into slavery to be a gladiator? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a huge step because obviously someone who is a gladiator, much like people who were, say, actors or mimes or prostitutes, they were in pharma in Roman society in that they were without reputation or without standing. It's where we kind of get our words of like famous and infamous from. And so it's a big deal. Like you're giving up your reputation. You're giving up a lot to do this. But some people obviously considered it worthwhile. Again, it's, it's more later, like it's more in the empire that we get you know, real solid examples of this happening. But it does happen, certainly. Yeah, basically, it means that you were owned by a gladiator trainer. And he would train you up to fight in the arena. And depending on when you were fighting, that could be more terrifying <laughs> or less terrifying. <laughs> so in the earlier period, you might just be fighting till first blood. But the more that you go through the centuries and get into the empire, the more likely it is that you're going to be fighting to the death. Yes, it's kind of similar to a lot of modern gladiatorial-esque sports. I mean, they're not giving themselves into slavery, but you're essentially wagering health issues and maybe less years on your life especially american football for the money yes. and that short fame on you're like risking head injuries and essentially not being able to walk when you're 45 for that like 10 year period not even that for most people but like five year period of just absolute rock stardom Totally. Yeah. The gladiators are really interesting figures because, and this is where the, the slavery aspect plays into it, I suppose, in that they are such a point of conflict for the Romans because they are all at once a person that the Romans most despise and most admire. Most Romans love the games. There are a few exceptions. The whole idea of gladiatorial combat is that it seems to have had an aspect to it where it was showing the Romans the kind of virtues that had made them Roman, that made them special, that made them the masters of the empire. And that's why they'd sometimes have, you know, it's like stage battles where they were reenacting actual historical conflicts. Okay, so these guys are the Carthaginians and these guys are the Romans. What's going to happen? Nobody knows. Um, <laughs> and that's why they sort of dress gladiators up often in armor that was based on the armor of the people that they captured. So, for example, Spartacus was apparently a Thracian. Now, that could mean he was from Thrace or it could mean he was dressed up like a Thracian-style gladiator. And you had, you know, like the Samnite, again, a historic enemy of Rome, 
So the armor is sort of based on their enemy. So yeah, you were meant to go and watch these games because it was instilling in you that sort of militaristic spirit of domination, conquest, toughness, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you're watching it be reenacted by slaves, the very people who supposedly don't have what it takes to be a Roman. So it is a bit weird. And I think the Romans themselves were kind of aware of that. But definitely they had that rock star status. I mean, Juvenal, although he's making fun of people because he writes satires, he does talk about this particular upper class woman who fell in love with a gladiator and like gave up her family and her status to run away with him. And, you know, she obviously thought he was freaking hot stuff, even though he was, you know, scarred and gnarled and, you know, like missing an eye and <laughs> not actually objectively good looking, but sexy. <laughs> So how did the gladiatorial contests come about? Was it in celebration of military victories where it first sprung up? Do we know its origins, where it first started, why it started? For something so crucial to the Roman culture in terms of if you ask anyone about Rome, they'll probably know about gladiators. We actually don't entirely know where it came from. It sort of springs up in 264. We have the record of the first gladiatorial fight and it sort of seems to come out of nowhere Originally, we can definitely say that they were funeral games. So they were meant to be honoring the deceased. So generally, there would be a fight of maybe a pair or maybe even a couple of pairs if you were getting really decadent during some sort of funeral, which would obviously be for someone upper class because you had to afford these people to fight. Possibly that means there was some sort of dimension there about the shedding of blood in order to ease the transition of the deceased into the afterlife. Because again, in these early stages, it was not going to be to the death generally. It was probably just going to be to first blood. It does seem to possibly have had some sort of link to the Etruscan culture. Again, it's a bit iffy. We can't say for 100%, but it's possible that this is a leftover, a legacy of the Etruscans. But gradually, people start to realize as time goes on that these are actually kind of a popular event. And so politicians start trying to sort of cash in on this by making them a little bit more of a spectacle. They're still using the excuse sometimes of a funeral. So, for example, Julius Caesar gives a fight, like a show, and it's ostensibly to honor um, one of his deceased relatives, but that relative passed away decades ago. So he's (laughs) clearly just using it as an excuse to make himself popular by throwing these gladiatorial shows. Eventually, of course, it just becomes part of the entertainment landscape. So how often were they held? Was it like something, oh, every Sunday afternoon? Yeah, just hang out, watch some death, yeah. (laughs) Like there definitely were, once you get right into the empire, I think more frequent, but generally they would be held like for something. I mean, you might have like your local games, obviously, but if we're talking about like Rome itself. So for example, one of the most notoriously decadent events ever was like the opening of the Colosseum. Titus holds games for a hundred days. That's a third of the year, pretty much, that games are happening. So that's pretty crazy. Bread and circuses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They would have been relatively frequent. Certainly emperors who didn't throw very many games weren't very popular. Like my favorite emperor, Tiberius, who's the second emperor, succeeds Augustus. He's not really into spending money on the games, so he hasn't put them on very often. It makes him pretty unpopular. Whereas someone like Nero, who puts them on a bit more often, is more popular with the people, not maybe the Senate, but he is more popular, I think, with the people as a result of that. So, yeah, it just depends on the emperor a little bit and, like, who's in charge. And they're always expensive, though. That's the thing. And especially as you get into the empire, if you are talking about, like, the big spectacle ones where you've got lots of people dueling it out, you know, you're potentially talking about lots of perfectly well-trained gladiators being slaughtered. 
it's a lot of investment to make a gladiator, which is why probably at first they weren't so keen on them dying in the arena on like their first battle because you have to train them, you have to feed them well, they need medical care, they need massages, you know, like they're athletes. And so you don't want them just to go out there and be like, ah, oh, damn it, <laughs> that was a couple of years down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, slaves are expensive, even though sometimes they get cheaper because there's so many of the market. The reason why your average citizen probably didn't have a permanent slave is because they're still pricey, like they're still an investment. These gladiatorial contests, how were they structured? So was it like a tournament of like 16 and then they'd fight all the way down to one winner and like a single elimination style tournament? <laughs> one will take home the crown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you would technically fight like four matches that day or was it just you went out and you fought once and you were the winner of one match? Was it a tournament? How were they structured? Yeah, again, it depends a little bit on where you're fighting. Like sometimes you might be sort of proving yourself if you're like Gladiator who's just been trained and so you don't have a lot of experience in the arena. Um, so you might have to sort of prove yourself in sort of minor matches before you actually get booked to be doing like the venue of the local amphitheater or whatever. So yeah, it probably depends a little bit on how experienced you are. But generally Gladiators are part of like a whole program that the Romans have worked out for themselves. So the Gladiators are definitely the highlight of that particular day. So from early in the morning, you might see things like the beast fights, which is where you've got people fighting or being thrown to, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> you know, some angry animals or exotic animals at least. And then you midday when, you know, the sun's really hot and high, you might be having executions. So people who have committed capital crimes, you know, you don't want to put that to waste. You want people to see it. And then the big event in the afternoon would be the gladiator fights. If you were a pretty good gladiator, you would probably only have the one match. And depending on how much they were willing to spend, depends on how many gladiators you're going to see and like how spectacular. But again, the more you go through time, the more it becomes like this insane spectacle where you might have lots of people fighting at once, like lots of duels happening, or you might have stage battles, or you might have gimmicks like dwarves or women you know, fighting as gladiators. Like a gladiator fighting women or dwarves or dressed up as women? Well, like actual female gladiators. Oh, oh okay. I misunderstood that. Yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> no, I mean, and dwarves who are in the arena. I just had a mental image of Spartacus dressed up in a dress fighting someone. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Just in case you weren't humiliated yeah. enough. <laughs> you have to do it now in a dress. <laughs> So women fought dwarves? Is that what you're saying? Or women fought other women? <laughs> no, they were more just like a freak thing to get people excited because I guess the more gladiators you see, you know, you start to get bored. you got to keep it interesting, people. <laughs> so they might look for something unusual to spice up their particular game so that when the average person on the street is talking about the recent games, they'll be like, oh, my God, I totally remember those games where they had a female gladiator fighting or they had a dwarf in the ring fighting because as opposed to just blending into the endless carnage <laughs> of the arena, it would just be something to make your gladiator fight stand out, make your game stand out probably rare that's probably gonna be your answer but how prevalent were female gladiators and how did they come about because i mean i'm sure they weren't rock stars <laughs> oh no not very that's the whole point they are mentioned purely because they are freaks <laughs> um, how did that come about i think essentially because they were looking for a way to spice things up in the arena they don't really come about until the empire no i mean how did a woman effectively become a gladiator like what would be the reasoning oh right sorry gotcha Presumably, much like the men did, she was probably a slave. She was probably selected like male slaves would be 
because she had the physical potential to become a gladiator. So if you, for example, had some, you know, Germanic slave that was, you know, towering six feet tall or was really fierce warrior, because, you know, some of these cultures that the Romans are conquering, the women aren't pushovers. So like Lady Brienne from Game of Thrones. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly the kind of thing they'd be looking for. (laughs) So yeah, that's probably how it would have come about. But we don't really have highly personalized stories of these women and their journey. We just have Romans reacting to it going, oh my God, a woman in the arena. I don't know what I think about that. You know, I think I like it. They're turned on. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them are horrified, but yeah. It's definitely not a common occurrence because obviously it is a tremendously physical thing and it's in a culture where women aren't thought of being capable of doing that kind of a role. (laughs) Do we know about them from just reliefs of it? Are they mentioned in any of the sources? Yeah, that's exactly. We have Romans reacting to them and that's why we know that they existed. But again, like we have only a few reactions. Obviously, anything to do with slavery or like people who are invisible in these sorts of societies, often the stuff that's recorded is obviously the stuff that stands out and that's why they're writing it down. So like the execution of 400 slaves I was telling you about before, that stood out because that was a lot of slaves. And that's obviously why they recorded it because it was controversial. Same in terms of slave cruelty. So one of the sort of most notorious cases, which lots of people probably have heard of, there was a guy who apparently used to feed his slaves to his pet lampreys. And not for any particular reason necessarily. Like he did it more often than, than, than he needed to. And the emperor sort of had to step in and be like, hey, stop doing that. That's creepy. So he was the Ramsey Bolton of the Roman Empire. Exactly, yeah. And, and the Romans had enough sense to be like, yeah, you know what, that makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but that kind of thing was obviously recorded because it was unusual for a master to be that sort of capricious and cruel. It's not every day that a Roman master treats a slave like that. I've always been um, fascinated by the fact that the Romans were fascinated with these type of games but it wasn't kosher for them to partake in that. Whereas opposed to the Greek society, they loved the athletic games and it was an honor for them to be (laughs) in those games. Like you said with the gladiators, it originally started out as funeral games essentially and it was honoring the spirits of the dead and obviously that extended to include all deities and because like skill and achievement were proper offerings to the gods. They were dedicating their bodies to the gods and that sort of stuff. And Greek society was marked with that competitiveness. You wanted to be the aristos or the best and it was ideal deal of Greek masculinity that was inspired by Homeric warriors. And so I've always been fascinated by the two dichotomies there. It is weird, yeah. Were Greeks gladiators or like what type of people tended to be gladiators or the Romans were like, oh, we need to get that person here. He is definitely born to be a gladiator. Were there a type of that or was it just based upon looks and sizes or was it just nationalities and that sort of stuff? Yeah, it was more physical. I mean, that probably did mean that certain nationalities were more likely to become gladiators than others because just physically, you know, genetically at that point in time, they were more likely to be taller or, you know, have more muscle tone or have just the temperament because obviously a gladiator has to be someone who's willing to fight. I mean, it's not going to be good for them if they don't, (laughs) but you do want them to be obviously kind of angry (laughs) when they're in the arena. So we don't hear of a lot of Greek gladiators. That's probably because they were viewed as effeminate. Yeah, exactly. They were generally more expensive types of slaves that you would hire to, say, educate your children or, you know, balance your checkbook or (laughs) something like that. Yeah, it's less common. But the problem is, again, like with the names, the Romans don't necessarily name someone based on where they're from. 
they're really marketers, to be honest. They're PR geniuses. <laughs> they're kind of like, mm, what name's going to suit you? I know with your look, you're going to be this. And so they kind of create personas for them in a sense. I definitely think there probably were examples of Greeks ending up in the arena, but I don't think it's as common as other nations. And there certainly wasn't like a race that was all gladiators. It would have been people who were suited for that kind of a role. Do they have good muscle tone? Do they have good teeth? You know, that kind of stuff. I'd like to think that Ajax and Achilles would have made good gladiators. <laughs> yeah, I think they probably would, yeah. I mean, the Romans, obviously Spartacus, one of the stories about Spartacus and how he ended up becoming a gladiator is that he ended up becoming a slave because he fought as an auxiliary along with the Roman army and he deserted and that's a big no-no. And so when he was captured, he was sold into slavery and he ended up becoming a gladiator. So he obviously would have been a great choice as a gladiator because he is an ex-soldier. He's already trained in combat. We can't be 100% sure that that's his backstory, but that just gives you an idea of like the kind of guy. It's very much like Maximus and Gladiator, I suppose, <laughs> in the recent movie. <laughs> Not that recent, but... <laughs> <laughs> hey, shut up. <laughs> Talk about my youth. <laughs> but yeah, the Romans, I think at first, were competitive in terms of being the best commander and being the best politician, as in, you know, achieving the consulship and being censor and that's where the Romans were competitive. It was seen as shameful to do anything to do with your body in public, especially as like part of a job. That's why that group I mentioned that gladiators were part of, gladiators, prostitutes, actors, they're all people that publicly exhibit their body and that is shameful. And they make a living by doing that kind of thing. That's part of the shame of their job. So that's why the Romans, I don't think, were into it as much, even though they liked the military aspect of the gladiator fights. It was considered disgraceful. However, again, the more you go into the empire and the further you get away from those sort of traditional virtues, we do have examples of emperors needing to legislate to stop senators wanting to go into the arena. And certainly it's seen as a big watershed in Roman history when an emperor finally enters the arena and fights or, you know, or does anything in the arena that's seen as like a really big... <gasps> Even going back to the early empire, like Nero obviously is massive Greek boy, loves all things Greek. When he takes part in the Olympic Games, the Romans are like, oh, my God. <laughs> what an embarrassment. <laughs> well, yeah, like he is embarrassing. It's probably also embarrassing because he's not very good. <laughs> but, yeah. but he wins because reasons. <laughs> oh, he won 1,808 prizes. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> because nobody was going to make him second place or third place or not even place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the Greeks were like, here you go. <laughs> well, on top of which they were benefiting. Like, he loved Greece so much that they, he was giving them special privileges all the time. So they're like, sure, take the medals in return. Give us tax cuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, gladiators, they were troublemakers sometimes, were they not? <laughs> <laughs> they were considered to be a liability because you essentially have little collections of these guys, you know, in their schools stationed all over the empire. <laughs> so you've got trained fighting slaves just, you know, hanging around. So certainly when things were seen as getting a bit dicey, sometimes they had gladiators moved because they were worried that they were potentially going to do something. <laughs> and they probably had a legacy of Spartacus hanging over their heads when they were talking about that kind of thing because Spartacus is obviously famous as a slave slash gladiator because he did lead a rebellion. He actually led the last really large-scale slave revolt 
or sort of slave war in Roman history. There had been three in fairly short succession and then nothing. It's really kind of bizarre, but again, you kind of have to imagine that even though there were a lot of slaves around, they were at least, I suppose, willing to go along with this system for whatever reason, whether it was fear or the prospect of being free, who knows. But yeah, he essentially rebels. He and a whole bunch of other gladiators break out of their school, go on rampage you know, in the local area, collect up some weapons, and they end up defeating consular armies. Although slaves do run away to join Spartacus once they see he's had some success, he's also joined by free poor. And this is something we probably haven't really talked about, but in some ways, slaves could actually be better off than the free poor in Rome. And this is something that Roman writers often remark upon, especially as we get into sort of late Republic, early empire. The ideal of the Roman farmer who's working his own small little plot of land and his small little farm and then goes off to fight when needed and then comes back to tend it, when that becomes less of a reality and you've got more of the latifundia, which are these large estates owned by rich guys and worked by slaves, a lot of these people are flooding into the cities. They don't necessarily have a lot of regular work or a lot of money. And so they can actually be living in worse circumstances than a slave in an elite household which is a real salt in the wound type of thing. And the Romans themselves clearly don't really have a solution. They talk about how horrible it is, but they don't really have a solution. Anyway, so a lot of these guys also seem to run away and join Spartacus. He ends up having an army of potentially like over 100,000 behind him. He does have some skirmishes where he kind of gets a little jab into Crassus's forces, but Crassus is the guy that's eventually sent to put down the slave revolt. There are three slave wars. Two happen in Sicily. One happens on the mainland, and that's Spartacus's. The main problem with these is that the Romans seem to be a little bit slow to react. So the local forces don't really cut it and they're very quickly (laughs) dealt with by the rebelling (laughs) slaves. And then the Romans don't seem to be very quick to act and like take decisive action. It seems to be because the Romans have this stigma about slaves. They're not worthy enemies. They're not worthy adversaries to fight. It's dishonorable to fight slaves. And so everyone's kind of looking at each other going, so that slave problem probably should get on top of that, right? And they're all desperately hoping that someone's going to put their hand up and go, oh, all right, all right, I'll go. I'll deal with it. <laughs> yeah, you can't get a triumph for defeating a slave army, right? <laughs> no, and that's exactly what happens with Crassus. You know, after a few years of rampaging around and defeating other Roman consuls, Spartacus is eventually defeated by Crassus and he gets an avatio, which is like the lesser kind of triumph. It's not anywhere near as special as a triumph because it is over slaves. Not every single slave is killed in this final battle. We hear that Crassus managed to round up about 6,000 survivors, and as a message, they are crucified up and down the Appian Way, which is one of the main roads in and out of Rome. So, yeah, it's a real message. (laughs) Don't mess with the Romans. And then Crassus wants to get that real triumph, so he heads east and (laughs) dun-dun-dun. Loses his head over the Parthians. (laughs) (laughs) I think the interesting thing about Spartacus is that, I mean, the sources are a bit fragmentary, but our two main sources are actually Greek. There you go. They're Roman Greeks, as in they're living in Roman Empire times, but they are from Greece, so Plutarch and Appian. And there are these tantalizing little hints, like Plutarch actually describes Spartacus as being more Hellenic than slavish in character, but he actually builds him up to be quite a noble character. And we also have these little hints in Plutarch and also in one of the very early Roman sources, which we literally have a sentence of, that Spartacus potentially revolted because his owner was being unfair somehow. So we have this sentence from Varro, which says, innocent Spartacus was condemned to a gladiator's lot. 
And Plutarch explicitly says in his narrative that they had been confined unfairly or like that they weren't being treated well. And this sort of feeds into the bigger Roman idea that, you know, if you're a good master, then your slaves will be loyal to you, potentially loyal till death. Like there are examples recorded of courageous slaves who kill themselves to their master or go to great lengths to save their master and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, they're almost sort of saying that Spartacus is not justified, like he's scary and terrifying and they don't ever want slave revolts to happen. They're terrified of that. But there is a hint that he had a reason, you know, that he wasn't being treated particularly well as a slave slash gladiator. And that's what caused the rebellion in the first place. So speaking of like loyal slaves, when slaves died, where were they buried? I know like some of the Athenian plots that we have, slaves were actually buried with their household. So how was this similar in Rome as well? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, probably the issue with our funerary evidence is that the people who could afford the kind of tombs or the kind of monuments that will last are obviously fairly well off because they can afford stone as opposed to something more temporary that might have once marked someone's grave. But certainly once a slave was freed, they became a client of their master. They were part of that master's familia and they would have a bond. Like it wasn't just like, see you later and good luck. They might help them set up a business or they might help them with their existing business enterprises. Some masters in Rome actually freed slave women so they could marry them because they fell in love with them. So they became their wives. And we definitely have examples of that recorded on tombstones. So yes, basically slaves were considered part of the household and therefore they may well find themselves buried in a family crypt or something which would have like, you know, potentially generations or potentially just one group of the family. And there would be like maybe an inscription to sort of record that. The thing about Romans is that they did become very close to some of their slaves. Like Cicero, for example, had a, a slave called Tyro who was very fond of. And on the day that he freed him, there's records of his wife just being so happy because they all loved him so much. And Cicero gets very annoyed that he hasn't heard from him, you know, in like a certain period of time after he's been freed. He's like, ah, oh, I wish I could beat him like I used to beat him because I haven't heard from him and I really miss him. And the Emperor Claudius, of course, notoriously close to his freedmen, even though that's probably slightly exaggerated, but he definitely seems to have been close to them. So there's definitely a sense that slaves work and live so closely with you that they are part of your familia in the wider sense. And I think the Romans did sort of often grow to care about these people. I mean, it must be so weird for us to think about, but in this kind of a world for an elite Roman, you couldn't really go anywhere without a slave. You would have a body slave. You would have slaves helping you go to the toilet. You would have slaves tasting your food. You would have slaves cooking your food. You would have slaves cleaning your house. You would have slaves everywhere. You were probably never alone. And so it's understandable that for a slave who was, say, your childhood nurse, who might be with you your entire life, they're someone whom you might even be closer to than your own parents. So, yeah, that's similar to the Greeks then as well. Yeah. And we get like face paintings of a slave holding a piss pot so the <laughs> owner can pee into it. <laughs> what a job. <laughs> they can't even use the bathroom themselves. Those poor helpless Greeks and Romans. Oh, completely. Yeah. When you think about it, I mean, you know, well before toilet paper, if I didn't have to wipe my own behind, I would have someone else do it too. This is valid point i can't make an argument there yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and obviously if you were a male you would probably potentially be having sex with your slaves male and female so that would breed a certain closeness <laughs> was that a common practice it does seem to have been a thing again it's so hard to know but your slaves were your property so you could definitely have sex with them the Romans do sometimes talk in this what we think of as weird way, talking about how, ah, oh, it's nice to have, you know, like 
slave children <laughs> that are your own but not your own, you know, <laughs> because, because they're not your responsibility in one sense, but they are. It's weird, but... Free labor. <laughs> yeah, definitely there are examples of people sleeping with slaves of both sexes um, because they're nothing. And with Rome, it's about the status of the person you sleep with, not necessarily their gender and the kind of sex that you have with them. And yeah, there's definitely examples of men having children with their slave girls, sometimes deliberately, perhaps because after all, you know, breeding is a way of sustaining the slave population. Yeah, I guess it would be ideal to instead of buying them, but at the same time, you'd have to pay for them for like the first 10, 12, 13 years or whatever. Oh, you're being too generous. No, no, five years. <laughs> my bad. Yeah, no, the Romans <laughs> would put them to use at five. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It, you're right. It is an investment, obviously, and that's why children are cheaper when we're talking about slave market prices. Yeah, if you actually had a slave born, you know, into your household, there was an idea that potentially they would be maybe more subservient because they were born into slavery. They didn't know any other life. If they were your child, that obviously forges potentially a loyal bond there. Although, you know, if you'd got that child by raping their mother, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> ancient standards, but you could put them to work as young as five. We've definitely got evidence, not necessarily of even slave children, but we have evidence from bones, from Roman burials of stress marks on the bones of children. So they were doing like manual work at the age of five. So like sweatshops. Sorry, not necessarily the five-year-olds, but like say children of say 10 or 13, we have evidence of stress marks from what could only be heavy labor. So they've obviously been working since they were say five, because that's the only way you get stress fractures by the time you're 10. Oh yeah, for sure. So, yeah, presumably like old slaves and young slaves, you'd have them doing something age appropriate. And that's what the Romans often talk about. They're like, yeah, technically you could just, you know, toss your old slave, you know, aside like a used handkerchief. But you can also be nice about it and give them something, you know, gentle to do, like some sort of function that they can perform. Door opener. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I hope I come back as a door opener. <laughs> There wasn't really any slave revolts in Greece. I mean, there was the one instance that I can think of where people from the mines kind of, this was like the third century, I think. I think I vaguely remember that, yeah. They fled down into the temple of Poseidon on Sunion and hung around the cove. It didn't last very long. It was short-lived. There's not a lot of fundia in Greece, so you don't get the type of like large, suppressed amount of slaves in one area that they get together and just go off. Yeah, there's definitely instances of isolated murders of masters by slaves. Basically, the slave revolts in Rome, it's just interesting that they also take place in this little window of like the late Republic. And there's definitely a strong indication in all of the cases that the reason for the revolt was that the slaves were being treated badly. So these were examples of bad masters, people who didn't know how to own slaves. And that's what the Romans were sort of always concerned about because they did believe, even though technically slaves were a piece of property and yes, they weren't Roman, which is the most awesome thing you could be, they did believe that slaves were obviously going to be potentially Roman citizens one day. And so they had to sort of reconcile that. And often their concerns that they talk about with owning a slave is how does owning your slave affect your character? So you shouldn't beat your slave in a fit of anger because that reflects poorly on you and your lack of control. You should count to 10 and think about the best way to deal with it. And if then you decide that beating your slave is the best thing to do, then go for it. 
but it's that sort of idea. And people who are bad masters, they're not treating the slaves reasonably. You know, you have a duty of care to your slave. It's almost a bit like a relationship with a pet these days, I think. You know, you have a duty of care for that thing under your roof and it's in your interest to look after it. So do they pet their slaves as well? (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes they do and that's how slave babies get made. (laughs) 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 The first two slave wars are actually seemingly led, I think, by people who are potentially Greek slaves. Because Sicily. Exactly, yeah. I think the reason why in Greece and Rome they probably don't have a lot of these is that they are pretty good about trying to make sure they don't buy all the same language group. So they're not going to feel like loyal to each other or speak the same language. I mean, obviously, they're scared about the idea of these people who share your house killing you in your sleep. So they're very savvy about how they try and minimize the risk. And I think that's why you don't see a lot of large-scale slave revolts. But these early ones on Sicily, they are seemingly driven by people who seem to have a sort of Greek background. And they're actually longer than Spartacus's. And they even like start minting their own coinage and stuff. They set themselves up as like a king. Those pesky Greeks. <laughs> yeah, I know. See, this is why you don't want Greek slaves, because they're too clever for their own good. <laughs> they can't just revolt like Spartacus and go and kill a bunch of people. They have to set up like kingship and start minting coins and <laughs> have like a state happening. They're better teaching our young children anyway. Yeah, that's right. As long as they're teaching them the right thing. (laughs) Teaching them poetry and art and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) Exactly, not seditious thoughts. (laughs) So thank you, Fiona, for joining me today. This was quite a conversation. I really like your podcast and I've been listening to it since Corey Lanis, so it wasn't that far in your timeline. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) seems like a long time ago. (laughs) But if any of the listeners want to find you on social media, your website, where they can find your podcast. They can find us on most medium. We're you know, on iTunes, Stitcher, all those sorts of things, Google Play. But probably the best thing to do is to go to our website, partialhistorians.com. You can listen to our episodes through there and check out our posts and that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for having us on. We're also big fans of, of your work. Yeah, <laughs> obviously we're listeners of uh, the History of Ancient Greece as well. 